The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast where I tell you that I don't like the books that I truly love deep in my soul. And my co-host Greg tells us how much he likes these books that he has never seen before and probably only kind of likes, and he's very polite. Greg, how are things going on your end? You are reading too much into the fact that we had a mutual friend once serve us dry pasta and plain (laughs) chicken breast as a meal, and I complimented it because I was a polite person. Yeah, I don't trust anything that you say that's nice about anything. (laughs) I am so glad that we know he quit this podcast weeks and weeks ago so I can safely out myself as having been overly polite in that moment. Uh, So good to see you, my friend. Things are good with you. We're, We're, again... Not talking about what's going on in the real world to keep this timeless, but we're both free. It's the summer and we oh, are academics. I turned in my grades this morning and it is the single <laughs> best feeling in the world. If you are an academic, you know what I mean. It's it's better than anything else. I know you've had children and you probably disagree with me, but no, nope, nah, nope, I'm there with you. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> I know I, there are so many times during a semester and and sorry for first world problems uh, on at the start of the, the podcast, but there's so many times during the semester. I'm like, why do I do this job? I hate this job. And then I remember that there's four months where it's like, yep. yeah, I still have things to do, but I'm largely unstructured and, and free. So uh, it's wonderful. One of the things I spent some time doing today is catching up on my podcast feed and I was listening to a really good episode of a podcast called Ringerverse. So there's the Ringer network of podcasts, and they put their nerd feed on uh, on something called Ringerverse. Um, so it's the name of the network plus verse like universe. And they did a really cool episode this week called um, – it's in a series they called Tropes Course, where they just go over different tropes and okay. um, kind of – fantasy nerd culture stuff. And so the first time they did it was in the middle of Last of Us. They talked about the wolf and cub kind of trope. And this time was about mystical blades and the way blades work. And I will say they did not get to the Heronmark blade, at least in the two and a half hours of the three and a half hour podcast I listened to. Uh, They spent a lot of time on Game of Thrones, which kind of just broke me because I'm like, I like Game of Thrones, but I don't love Game of Thrones. Um, But one of the things they talked about that I thought was really interesting in uh, terms of our show and some of the things we've been discussing is they talked through this kind of famous quote, and I don't remember the critic who originally came up with it, that essentially says that when you deal with science fiction and fantasy, that the key difference between the two is that in science fiction, characters hear the rules and essentially do science to try to take those rules and change them and experiment 
movement within them. So I don't know, our ship can go to light speed, but let's see what happens when we get a little further into light, you know, right. whatever. And then in fantasy, the rules of the world are just accepted and not questioned and not, uh, you know, uh, discussed further, not not experimented with. And I don't think that that is a perfect kind of encapsulation of the two yeah. genres, but I thought it was really fun to kind of walk through some of the different franchises I love. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I think in Star Wars, you do get a lot of, well, what if the Force could do this? What if somebody did this with the Force? Although, again, Star Wars is always on that line between sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah, I, I love yeah. me some fantasy Star Wars much more <laughs> than sci-fi Star Wars. Yeah, well, and like in Star Wars, it's like, uh, you know, the they were talking about the Darksaber because that was so prominent in recent Star Wars. And it's like, yeah, you just kind of accept those rules and that's how the Darksaber works. And we don't worry about the yeah. fact that we're learning that. And so I was thinking a lot about our franchise here. Uh, there it is. We're finally getting back to the content of the actual podcast. But I was thinking a lot about how that has largely applied here. My kind of understanding of Wheel of Time so far across these two books is that they are learning rules they don't know, but I don't see a ton of let's experiment, let's question these rules. And even when rules are bent those just apply to other rules, right? Like right. that's the beauty of the Tavir. And it's like, oh yes, like it's unexpected that this happened, but guess what? There's a rule that absolutely explains why unexpected things would happen in this case. So yeah. um, I don't know. I, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to share that and recommend it if people were curious about that episode of the podcast. Um, but do you, do you think there is kind of just acceptance of all the rules across Wheel of Time that we've experienced so far? So- I hesitate to some degree to answer that question, in part because a lot of the characters who I think would be the ones pushing any sort of experimentation are still young and early in their kind of development of their powers, mm. if you will, right? So yeah. um, it's hard to tell yet whether Egwene or Rand are going to be playing within the rules or breaking the rules because they're still learning what the rules are. Um that being said, I think this works really well. What I would say in response to it in a more kind of general sense, rather than like are any of our characters, these kind of like rule breakers, is I think one of the interesting quirks in the Wheel of Time is that the characters are aware that they don't know all of the rules and that there mm. are rules that they are not aware of. And it's that layer of kind of lost knowledge that I think allows Robert Jordan to play around with the border between sci-fi and fantasy a little bit. And we see that this week with like alternate reality, parallel, mm. whatever stuff, where I think what Robert Jordan does a lot of times is he says his characters aren't trying to alter the rules or change them in the way that I think you're saying sci-fi does, but his characters are discovering limits to rules or exceptions to rules that no one knew existed in a lot of cases. And that's not necessarily because they're doing that sci-fi push against or rebel thing. It's maybe more just because in Robert Jordan's world, so many of the rules are unknown. Yeah. Implied in this first chapter, and we'll turn to it after this is, um, this idea that somebody a long time ago, or maybe this is the second chapter, somebody a long time ago actually did know these rules. So, so right. you're right in how you formulated that. It's like somebody did this experimenting to figure out how to make all these things work, but we need to discover that. And I was thinking as you were starting your comments that that's different than Harry Potter because Harry Potter, it's about the core characters learning what everybody yeah. else clearly already knows. Whereas this is 
very much everybody we're with is learning as they go, even to the extent of like Moraine is right. in uncharted territory, even if she has the most complete map of that territory that of the people we know. Yeah, it takes about six books before uh, Dumbledore becomes fallible. On the other hand, Moraine <laughs> makes it like 400 pages. So yeah. I think we're playing in the same genre, right? We're not breaking that like sci-fi fantasy line that you're talking about. But I think the amount that Robert Jordan is playing with that line is just in a different la- level than we see with some of the other you know examples we're talking about. And that's why I love it so much. And I will not <laughs> let you divert us from this chapter any longer. It is time for chapter 36 among the elders so in among the elders rand and the group are being led towards the elders of the ogier and rand notices that loyal is getting more and more nervous as they travel through the steading um once they arrive uh, matt and rand insist that loyal doesn't need to go inside and they only want to meet with the humans and the person guiding them basically just says like okay yeah sure whatever so loyal stays and reads his book um As they enter, they see that there are seven Ogier who are the elders, and the one who we primarily interact with is a apparently very old female Ogier named Alar, or Alar, I'm not sure. Um, And as they enter, they hear Ingtar being denied the use of the ways, and then when Rand says that they have seen the Black Wind and have traveled the ways before, uh, Alar asks for Trial, and Trial is another Ogier who is brought out, and he is empty according to Varen. he has no soul he has no mind he just is barely there um once the ogier are sure that everyone understands the gravity of the situation Varen again asks to go to the way gates and the ogier are basically like yeah okay that's fine so they start to take them towards the way gates as they leave they talk a little bit about loyal and the decision is essentially made loyal is allowed to leave with them as long as Rand takes an oath saying he'll take care of him. So he does. Um, they then leave the studding. Rand realizes that Sidine is back. And as they go to open the waygate, it is immediately uh, filled by the Black Wind, Machin Shin. And so Varen replaces the Avendasaur leaf immediately. Um, Ingtar wants to go back to Barthanis. Perrin says they find another studding. But then Hurin says, what we actually need is a portal stone. Varen says, if only we had one. And Alar is like, oh, there's one just down the street. So they decide to go to the one just down the street and that will lead us into the next chapter but for now um boy are these pieces moving into the places they need to be i think this is kind (laughs) of the last table setting chapter of the book as far as i'm concerned but is is that the perception you had also is this is kind of that last click of the roller coaster to steal the metaphor we used way too much last season Uh, yeah, Deus Ex Portal Stone, right? Like, let's yeah. just finally, and, you know, it, it is kind of a cheap yada, yada, yada of, like, let's just find a way to get there while still making it not quite easy enough. Yeah. Um, I think, to me, the purpose of this chapter was just to remind us of that, that this world is still very dangerous. So between the empty yeah. Ogier and then the black wind which i i don't know my my question my notes is like is it hunting rand because they said it had kind of recently moved here and so whatever forces are at work in uh on the other side of the way gate um you know seem to be active not just kind of it's not like the whole place is tainted that this is an entity that is smart and is moving 
to counter the moves of this group. So um, very interesting that it would be like, and the whole thing's broken, but let's just use this other thing. Uh, yeah. So it, it kind of creates the problem and solves the problem in the chapter itself, which to your point, there's not a huge amount I have to say about it because it kind of solved its own problem. <laughs> yeah, I have frequently described the early books in this series as being every book finds a different way for people to get somewhere fast. It's like, okay, book one, we need to get somewhere fast. It's the way gates. And then the second one, okay, the way gates are broken. So let's use portal stones. And there will be other options as we continue to go forward. But it feels like sometimes Robert Jordan's like, oh, I've got 100 pages left. And he just needs <laughs> the characters to get there. Um I think then, to me, this chapter has two sections, right? One is exactly what you're describing, this kind of adventure. How do they get there? What are the barriers in their path? Why do they need to use the portal stone? But before that, we get quite a bit of focus on Loyal as a character. First him resisting, wanting to go before the elders, and then after the meeting with the elders, when they essentially require that someone kind of be his guardian and then pick someone who is 80 years Loyal's junior. Um, what was your take <laughs> on Loyal's journey in this chapter? So is really all of their fears are just because they really want to get uh, Loyal studying, <laughs> essentially? Like, they they just want him? That's essentially yeah. it? Am I, I missing something there? <laughs> I mean, we know that he ran away from home too young, and so in theory, he has broken some rules, and they might want to, like, basically house arrest him until his mother can come get him, but yeah you're not wrong they're like yeah. hey look there's a guy from elsewhere it's it's <laughs> it's that small town thing of like yeah, my, my truck broke down we have 48 hours let's see if we can get this guy a wife uh, the farmer's daughter uh paradox That's uh, right. yeah it's very funny um this is so dumb i'm not even jumping to star wars but something really really weird in star wars so awesome. in the star wars prequels there's a jedi named kiati mundi do you know about him yeah the and do you know that his species he's the one jedi allowed to procreate still because yep. his species doesn't have males so it's written into star wars lore for some reason that kiati mundi gets to go just have some wild weekends back with his home species sometimes and it cracks me up that like that exists at all but that is yeah. exactly the vibe i got here it's like you know we're uh, again timeless we're not referring to what's happening but we're thinking a lot about royals right now right. and how uh the pool of royal blood might be a little too thin um and so this feels very much like the same issue going on here right where where they want to increase their genetic pool not that they're thinking about it in those scientific terms but yeah let's have a new bachelor here let's keep him here as a part of that and so this this vow to make him return i guess the one other piece that's a little weird about it is Loyal is presented as anxious and nervous, but not like down on the idea, just a little right. like scared, right? Like, yeah, well, he seems very enthusiastic about Aerith, right? Like, he got a yeah. flower from a girl and he is kind of all in <laughs> to the point that both Matt and I think Rand are like, um, do you just want to stay? It's fine if you want to. <laughs> uh, I think that this is a really interesting mirror of some of what we had seen a few chapters ago at the party in Carrion, right? These are two very insular societies where someone from the outside can get everyone a buzz, but this is obviously a very different vibe from that. And so I think that echo works really well for me, but I don't really yeah. have too much else to say about it, right? Loyal is nervous that he's going to be forced to stay here because he doesn't want to go back home, especially not with a wife. 
good plot, Robert Jordan. I, <laughs> that's fine. Well, and it it is also just interesting too because in establishing them in the way you just described, I do think it starts to feel like well, these threats we're really thinking about are to all of these peoples and all yeah. these societies, and so one would assume that we will eventually need to start uniting them and pulling these pieces together in some way. Um, And so this dynamic you're describing is like, well, they have a lot in common, so they'd like understand each other, but also at the same time, they are very insulated and separate. So it would be a hard job to draw them together and to kind of get rid of, you know, one of my notes here for this section is that um, Ingtar is still like all amped up and like ready to, ready to fight. And and so that to me is a reminder of that second piece where it's like, well, you know, they're not just going to accept each other. They are going to be angry and fight it out. And, you know, any yeah. fantasy epic seems to have a like unite the clans moment. And it's yeah. going to be really difficult here, it would seem. Well, I forget if it was the end of this chapter or the beginning of the next one. But Alar, the Ogier, refers to um, waiting out Tarman Gaidan. She says, we'll just stay peaceful in the steading while it goes on outside. So if that's kind of the level of apathy that you're battling against, I think you're exactly right about the challenge of getting something like the Ogier, right? It feels like the Ents, right? It's going to take them a hundred years to make yeah. a decision about whether to get involved. It's it's pretty tricky to get that involved, um, <laughs> unless someone cuts down some trees, which seems like it would also work with the Ogier. Um, Then we get to, I think, the interesting part of the chapter in terms of action. We try to open the way gate. Machin Shin tries to come out. They close it. And one really interesting note that I had is uh, Rand comments aloud that Machin Shin didn't try to leave the way gate like he saw in Carrion. We described this a couple weeks ago. He had to embrace the power to hold back Machin Shin. And Varen's response is, it is impossible for Machin Shin to leave the Waygate at all. So we're now kind of bumping up against, is Varen unreliable in saying that? Is she not entirely sure about the answer? Or is Rand not as reliable of a narrator as we thought? Because we now have a contradiction between what we've been told in narration and what Varen says is possible. And at least in theory, Varen can't lie. Well, now putting that into the to our opening conversation, then is this a rule or is this a changing rule as a part of that? And I would say, again, they weren't the ones testing the rule, but I would say yeah. it feels to me like there were there was some imperceptible circumstance last time that caused the different behavior. So yeah. I would lean on the two times were actually different. It's not false narration, yeah. but it's something that Varen believes is impossible, but a rule we haven't discovered. Something that drew them out. Uh, drew it, it out. It, yeah. they, it, it win. I think probably. <laughs> uh, drew it out last time, and yeah. we don't really know the details of that. So that's probably where it comes from. Yeah, and I think that what to me is shocking about this is just how brief this scene is, right? It feels really impactful. There's a lot of discussion about how is Machin Shin here and what is the mechanics of it and could they go somewhere else? But in terms of the actual action, it's maybe like three paragraphs. It's like they open it, it's scary, they close it, done. And yeah. and so what we're kind of left with, I think, is just 
cryptic discussion about Match and Shin and what is happening. And the question that you kind of opened us with was the question of, is Match and Shin following Rand? That seems to be what he is concerned about. It seems like Varen is talking about Match and Shin, like, guarding against people entering through waygates and maybe, like, patrolling or something like that. Um, I think this is an intriguing create-a-lot-of-questions section about what is going on and what are the mechanics of it. But without answers, I'm not entirely sure what to grasp onto as a big conversation point. Um, was there anything else that stood out to you in this scene regarding the Waygate and just in general how they were talking about what I think of as kind of the box closing in on them? Yeah, I, I think that is the primary dynamic there. And honestly, what I was thinking about is like, wow, I hadn't when we dealt with the Machin Shin before, I hadn't thought about the lost smoke monster. And I was like, whoa, Wheel of yeah. Time fans must have been going nuts in like 0405, like <laughs> in like explaining like, no, it's it's the way gates. It's going between those things. Um, And that kind of helped me visualize it a little and, okay, and yeah. think about it. But but nothing real, nothing serious that I was actually uh, thinking about there. It yeah. does just feel like the point is to close off that path. I uh, will assume that's not just for the portal stones, but it was clear that they could cross the continent very quickly if they were successful in opening the way gate. So it seems to me after reading the next chapter that the point is the delay and we'll save that talk next time. So yeah. the only other note I have that hasn't been covered here is as they start to talk about portal stones again to the point that Varen should uh, Varen is not lying yeah. uh she says no one should be able to use them and is yep. surprised that Rand can so um and gives an offhanded remark that she'd very much like to meet the the lady friend uh as yeah. a part of that but um that to me just felt like a dangling thread well I, I'm kind of thinking we're not going to see her again this book but okay. who knows um and then uh, we'll we'll figure out more about her later. Um, and then the actual Rand can use it as more like, okay, is his power growing? Is is something really changing in him that gives him this? So, yeah. And I think other than that, I just have two very very small details that I would add on top of that. Um, the first is that when Varen is talking about portal stones, she says uh, one, she says she wants to meet Celine, and then she mentions that the book that Celine had, it has been long thought there are no copies surviving since the breaking. So I know we were talking about kind of like Celine's origins and theories on that. She has access to something that is believed lost for a long time. If we're looking at things that might point toward a theory, um, the other thing, if we're just tracking what does Varen know and when, because she's an interesting, intriguing character, um, when they say we could use a portal stone, Varen's response is, there are none near here. The closest that I'm aware of is in the Aiel Waste. And mm -hmm. just the fact that she knows of the existence of a portal stone in the Waste is fascinating because no one goes to the Waste, we have learned in this and previous books. But I've just got those two little intriguing details, nothing else big. Um, any last thoughts while I flip my page and get ready to do a recap of the next chapter? I would just say, you know, again, it feels like between these chapters, we're leaving the Ogier and it you know, anytime you're in a society on the frontier, it's like it feels like one at risk. And so yeah. the way this has a plan for its future and so on, it 
it's not quite idyllic enough to make me think we'll come back to just like burnt huts, you know, in that kind of trope uh, that that this yeah. will be overrun. But I do think, you know, um, that we are meant to think of them as not of this conflict, but yeah. about to be in this conflict or some such. So we'll see. No, and that makes Turn a lot that of page. <laughs> it is turned. We are ready to go. Uh, <laughs> chapter 37. What might be. So Alar leads them while Rand is thinking that Varen isn't going to be the one who is using the portal stone, and he is absolutely correct. Um, they arrive, and Ingtar is basically arguing they should go back, and he basically is convinced he can do something to Barthanas to find out what is happening and how uh, Fane got there. Um, but Varen is able to talk him out of this pretty quickly by basically just saying, like, no, if you're too scared, you can go home, and he backs off pretty quickly. Um, Varen then explains the port the portal stone to Rand. She shows him one symbol that she says is an image of the portal stone at Toman Head, but says that there are also kind of symbols that connect the two, and then there is also an image of worlds, and basically says, you need to guess randomly. I think it'll work because you're the dragon reborn and you're destined to do things. Uh, so he tries it. And it doesn't go great. Uh, we get a bunch of flickers. Um, we first pick up with Rand having tea on winter night and Trollocs come in and kill him instead of him escaping. And then we flicker to another life in which Rand is glad he married Egwene, though sometimes he has episodes that Egwene helps him through. There are false dragons everywhere, and Archer Hawkwing's army has returned. Um, the White Tower has been torn down, we learn. And um, basically, a lot of bad things are happening around the world, especially when Egwene passes because Rand then no longer is getting any support, and so he gets a wasting sickness, eventually joining the army and being killed by a Trolloc. Flicker, flicker, flicker. Egwene died a week before his wedding. Tam gave him a sword and told him to go fight an Ilian. He made it as far as Berlan before being robbed and then running away from Min. He became a Queensguard, had violent moods, learned he could channel, and became what he thought of as a false dragon, eventually leading a massive battle against Camelon itself, where he was killed. Um, then lots and lots of other lives happen and everyone wakes up. Um, know what everyone is confused. Lots of people have lots of thoughts about what has gone on. And Varen basically tells them we have arrived exactly where we wanted to be, but about four or five months later. So that happened. It's a lot in a chapter. We arrive, the time switches. And it's interesting because it kind of reminds me a lot of the testing scene we had with Nynaeve. But here, I think the veracity is a little bit more known, right? Varen says this isn't real in the real sense, but these are things that could have happened. So I'm curious what your thought was. I think of this as kind of the payoff, at least in this book so far, of the Portal Stones. How did it work for you? Uh, I, I very much enjoyed what I called verse jumping in my notes. Uh, and that to me was the more enjoyable part of this. The opening where they really go in the details of the symbol. Um, it There's always something in sci-fi and fantasy where it's like, somebody's going to be mad. So I have to explain this all in detail. But I was yeah. like, don't bother. Just tell me the portal stone can get you somewhere. But, yeah. you know, you know, somebody would be like, well, it's a little convenient. So they have to kind of uh, explain right. away how it, it's not that. So 
Um, so yeah, I, I thought the, the, uh, verse jumping was, was really fun. And, um, I am starting out a, a new season of the podcast Star Wars Minute, which takes a, a minute of Star Wars at a time. And they just did the light speed skipping. And so I was like, oh, okay. it's it's very much like that from the beginning of Rise of Skywalker, where, I mean, that kind of breaks a bunch of Star Wars rules. And we'll just set that aside uh, yeah. for a minute. Um, but it is kind of fun when they just can flash to some wild world and then flash out of it and this was a deeper version of that because they bothered to tell us exactly what's happening and we see a lot of it. Um, and I have a few reactions that I'm sure we'll get into um, as we talk about it. Yeah, It reminded me a lot of, again, I think we've brought this up once or twice before, Rick and Morty, potentially mm. problematic show, but nail on the head as far <laughs> as this. This reminded me of the episode with the video game Roy, where you are like, immerse in someone's head and live an entire life and then you come back and people are like oh man you worked at a carpet shop what the hell right <laughs> that's what this feels like to me is yeah. you live an entire life and then flash back suddenly and it's it's not common enough to be a trope but i think there mm. are versions of it all over like fantasy and science fiction and so this to me i think is a it's it's a fun unique enough take right there's nothing yeah. groundbreaking about it but it works. It, it does what it's designed to. Yeah. One other funny Star Wars reference for it is um, if people uh, enjoyed The Last Jedi, they should check out The Last Jedi novelization, which actually begins with a chapter of Luke Skywalker, old man living at home, having won over Cammy on Tatooine and taken over the family moisture farm and never having gone off and fought the empire or blown up the death star. And it ends up, I believe it ends up being a dream sequence. Like okay. Luke wakes up on the Island. It's like, Oh, that was weird or whatever. But it is, it is that same thing. Like you're talking about like the way that what becomes powerful about those is when it is like a complete full life. And you realize yeah. the kind of different path, you know, usually it's a small choice would have made in this and, and become something kind of crazy. So people should check out that novel. That's all I remember about that novel. So just read the first chapter and return it to the library. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan to me. That's fascinating. And <laughs> I wish it had been in the original movie. Um, I think the only thing that stands out to me before we get into verse jumping, which I like, it's a solid descriptor, um, is there's this interesting section, which I agree with you, the description of all of the little symbols and what do they mean is a bit much for me. But Varen's conclusion, Ran should pick, and it can be random because the pattern will not allow the dragon to fail, I think is worth at least a little bit of a look, mm. given that we are in a world where Taviran is a real thing rather than fate and randomness being truly random and you know unknowable so i'm curious what you thought about that kind of approach by Varen of like it's going to be okay you have prophecies about you yeah it's really interesting because it it feels like a gambler move which she is very much not the like gambler right. rogue t stereotype but is actually putting that kind of bet on her book learning for lack of a better term. Right. Yeah. She's like, she's studied this so much. She knows so much about it that she's like, it's, it's like, uh, I guess it's like rain man, somebody who goes to Vegas and just plays the probabilities, right? Like who yeah. can figure out the exact percentages and all of that and get it through. Um, that's such a bad, 
analogy for what she did. But but that's what it feels like as opposed to a gambler who's playing the other players or something, right? It's not yeah. intuitive and gut instinct. It's actually like hard facts and making the best choice you can in the circumstances. And I appreciated that Rand's response to that is basically like, well, okay, I don't have an answer. I'll do it. And then he picks the one that makes him think about being free, right? That is the yeah. entirety of the thought that he puts into it. And I can appreciate that in a main character. Um, the other thing that I found a little bit interesting in this early section is just that Ingtar keeps pushing to go back and seems convinced that he can get Barthanis to miraculously do something he was unwilling to do before. Um, just because it's been brought up so many times in these chapters, like, do you think Robert Jordan is like pushing you to something or is it just a reminder that that character is still there every chapter? And I, Robert Jordan does have a tendency to be a little repetitive with his character mm. descriptions. What did you feel about that? Or have you gotten a feel for what that kind of repetition is is building towards? Well, as I alluded to last chapter, I think Ingtar has been off. And I, I said that last week as well as yeah. last chapter, that it does feel like this is a different guy. And so, you know, it it feels to me very similar to the way Matt is getting grumpier. It's like, is Ingtar being affected by something in that mm -hmm. same way? Um, there's kind of... I kind of dismiss it as not something supernatural or something, because to me, it's also that's the type of power he knows he yeah. is kind of he doesn't understand all this. Actually, it's a, I'm just in a Star Wars mood tonight, I guess. It's a little bit like um, I don't know if you've heard of this character. His name is Grand Admiral Thrawn. Uh, I think your <laughs> wife is obsessed with him. Um, but Grand Admiral Thrawn is this great Star Wars character who relies on logic and just doesn't understand the force because that doesn't have anything to do with the types of knowledges he, uh, you know, works in. And so I do think that it's a little bit of that. Like this is so far beyond what Ingtar can understand in terms of this world. Yeah. He doesn't understand the power. He doesn't understand these stones and all that. But what he does understand is taking your sword and leaning on a guy until he gives you what you want. And so yeah. I, I think Whereas I do think he's struggling to maintain his character in these moments. I think it, it is also a little bit of that. Like he's just out of his depth for, you know, the TLDR. Yeah. And and this is actually a very nice transition because even Varen is clearly in over his in over her depth come the next section of this chapter. Right. We get flashes of possible lives. It does not go well for Rand. Uh, two notes I have. And then I just want to get you know, your, you know, what stood out? What were you excited about? What worked for you? Um, so my two quick notes is one, things get pretty dark pretty quickly. And I think one thing we should be thinking about and maybe it's worth, you know, you discussing either now or, you know, going down the road is we've now seen a couple of examples with um, Nynaeve going through um, the arches and now Rand going into some past lives and They've had a few things in common, right? The armies of Archer Hawkwing are back. They seem to be hunting Aes Sedai. There's been mention of attacks on the White Tower or the destruction of the White Tower. So how real is this is an interesting question. The other note that I have here is that a couple of the things that get brought up in this section are actually outtakes from earlier drafts of Robert Jordan's. Things oh, like huh. uh, Rand going to war against Camelin is something thing that was originally going to happen and then oh, when it was fun. changed it ended up in this section huh 
wow, that's just so beautifully meta in a pure kind of Rick and Morty way, actually. Um, and I was going to, a couple things come to mind in this is I, I was playing around with a couple ideas. The first is actually the other Dan Harmon property, which is community. Okay. And it, it very much felt like the the very famous uh, alternative realities episode of that show where they roll a die and yep. we see the outcome of each side of the dice. And that has lived on as the internet meme of Troy entering the apartment again, looking at what's yeah. happening, which is called in the meta universe of that show, the, the darkest timeline. And so I found myself kind of which one of these is the darkest timeline. And that yep. was kind of a fun game to play as, as we were learning through these. Um, and, and I, I, I don't know, I, I almost want to pause and answer that question, but not quite. The other thing that was on my mind, and this ties more into your question is I was thinking, um, you know, Marvel kind of took a few steps into the multiverse and then kind of backed up and then kind of redid those steps. And now, yeah. now the guy they wanted to lead the multiverse stuff is like super problematic. So who mm -hmm. knows what they're going to do? Their, their wobble became like a big problem all of a sudden, but, um, yep. But one of the ways they did that is in in WandaVision, I believe, they called Scarlet Witch a nexus being, I yep. think is the right Marvel term. And the idea was that there are so many timelines and they're all different. All the universes are different, but there are some individuals who exist in every single timeline. And yep. so I was thinking about that with those events. I, I would almost call those nexus events, right? Like the arrival of the Sea Chan seems to be a nexus event, and that's going to happen in each timeline Yep. But it's going to feel differently depending on which choices have been made ahead of it. And the fall of the White Tower would be one of those and so on. So um, so both of those were kind of how I, I was playing in these. Um, so in that regard, I'm going to nominate because uh, I, I actually think your summary went through kind of the basics of each pretty well. I don't know that we yeah. have to take them one at a time, but I will nominate the second one as kind of the the darkest timeline. So that uh, let's see, that's the one where he. Uh, didn't go on the adventure. He married Egwene. Egwene died, and then yeah. he ends up like going there. And so one of the notes I made is I was noting that if that's the darkest timeline, I think Robert Jordan is signaling to us that Baalzaman is a bigger threat than the Sea Chan. Like the the order of operations Sean in that time. Sean Chan, sorry. Yeah, no the order of operation in that universe is that yes, the the Sean Chan uh, took over. But it was actually the problem was then that Beelzebub's armies wiped out the continent. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing that worked really well in that one of the the visions or lives, if you will, is that kind of cascade of badness, right? It's first it was the false dragons, and then it was the Sean Chan, and then it was society collapsing, and then it was the Trollocs and the Fades, and yeah, it, I, I think that just did a really good job of highlighting we're pretty early in this series, but there is a lot that is kind of ready to go wrong. And, and that's exciting to me, right? To see, yeah. you know, how badly things could go lets you know what all needs to be stopped in order for things to go a little bit better. Um, I also think the, the thing that worked for me the best isn't any of the kind of long extended sequences it's just the litany that we get towards the end of like, he was a pauper. He did this. He did this. He tried this thing. He did this thing. 
And for some reason, I think because we had gotten a couple of those slice of lives effectively, it really kind of drilled home the experience of living all of those, even though we only mm. peeked in on a couple. I thought that was really well executed. And then obviously it's reinforced when we come out of it by everyone's immediate visceral reactions to whatever they've just gone through. Um I don't know. I guess I'm saying any final thoughts on verse jumping. <laughs> um, well, and just I, I want to agree that that was all really fun. And, um, you know, we didn't yet say the refrain of like, I win again. I win again. Right. Is the the pronouncement. And I think the feeling there is that, you know, what Beelzebub wants him to realize is there's no way out of this. Like you're just living right. one of infinite lives, all of which end with me winning. But while his message is give up, to me, it's like, but this one's not settled yet. Like this one, right. we don't know yet. And so um, actually, it's it's a little bit of the Marvel uh, Endgame Infinity War. I'm just spoiling every possible film and, and, and TV book franchise I can tonight. Um, but where Doctor Strange, you know, yeah. he says, I looked at 14 million out uh, potential outcomes. And how many do we win in one? Right. Yeah. And and that really great reminder he gives is like there is the one. And so it felt more like that message was my takeaway from this chapter. Like maybe we are in the one that yeah. he can actually win in. And, you know, that's usually how these stories work. So I would assume we are. <laughs> yeah. So it actually, this section kind of made me think that maybe Varen was right to put the faith she did in chance. It's like, there are mm. so many universes where things can and have gone wrong, but I think Varen's faith is like, we're in the universe where they don't. And so yeah. you're going to pick the right thing because all of the other universes are the, the dark timelines. Right. And, um, it's a really interesting, I think, just take on, on fate and destiny that we have kind of building here of randomness still exists, but what does that mean? And what does alternative realities play into that? Um, it's, it's just a big, deep world that I just get excited to play around mm -hmm. with more is kind of what this chapter does for me more than anything else. Um, the end of this chapter is basically everyone going, oof, that was rough. And then getting to see kind of the variety of different reactions with Matt, for example, saying he would never turn in Rand or Ingtar saying that he is going to side with the light over the dark and a variety of other kind of things that people said. Um, end of the chapter, thoughts about the travel, what stood out to you among kind of, we get a little snippet from every character, but not a whole lot of kind of big sections of any major events yeah some some nice little tiny beats um i in my notes are kind of lame they just say matt matt's even grumpier right especially when they yep. find out four months has passed um i you know you were talking about how well done the flickering was done and then that leads right into the concept of burnout and it's like yeah, yeah. we we can lose rand we have another way we can lose him essentially not just to madness but to you know yeah. Uh, really kind of burning alive it sounded like um and this kind of pledge from Varen is perhaps the most interesting that she will guide him right that she yeah. she will help him to make sure that doesn't happen um which i would say is is why moraine put Varen here it would it, as i understand the dynamics um and that's an exciting kind of I was going to say coupling, but that sounds like I'm shipping them. But, you know, a, a yeah. pairing off of, of two characters, and I'm excited to see that relationship grow a little bit more. But that, that's really all I have. Um, it's it's shocking to me that we kind of haven't touched on some of the other plot threads in a while, and we're just going to jump four months. And so yeah. those are kind of clearly have had 
we're going to need updates at the beginning of the the next chapter to really see what's happened over there i think yeah and i think that this is something that robert jordan does effectively here is i think he is in having this time jump he is solving a writing problem right he knows he has characters who need to be somewhere and he has other characters who need to be something at the same time and the timelines don't work out so he comes up with an excuse for a few of the characters to miss five months right and i think it's very cleverly done and what he does effectively is he then hides that in a really interesting like plot uh world building moment so you almost don't notice the the magic trick of him just being like ignore the four month difference in the timelines <laughs> between these two characters. Um, it works. Yeah, he, well. uh, he's he solved the Empire Strikes Back problem, yep. right? So so Empire Strikes Back for those who are not as obsessed as we are. Um, the problem is the Han and Leia plot in that movie needs to happen over hours, maybe yep. a day. And the Luke Skywalker plotline needs to happen over at least a couple weeks. And so if you pick those apart, they really don't fit together at all in any yeah. way. Yeah, um, Han and, and Leia had to hide in an asteroid for like a week and a half is, is what I've always concluded. <laughs> there is a there is a new timeline book out and I haven't looked at that page. And now, now I'm going to run upstairs and check out the Empire Strikes Back to see if they solve that problem because yeah. that's always a fun one to throw to, to Star Wars nerds to be like, so how long... How long did Luke train? How did it like, was it just a couple hours one afternoon or yeah. Um, But you're right that that does let us get a lot of the training done. And it makes me think a lot about where we left, particularly Egwene and Nynaeve. Nynaeve had just passed and Egwene had just kind of landed among all those new characters. And so I would assume as we return to them that Nynaeve's powers will have increased and Egwene's like social life will have increased and they there's already a lot of like you should date him and then so like yeah. what's gonna have happened i mean four months in a high school that's like six relationship cycles so i, mean, I really <laughs> wish that this next chapter just began with like Egwene showing the new girl around the cafeteria i would <laughs> love that chapter sadly that is not what i can promise you uh... um but we are down, I think we mentioned this uh, before we started, actually. Uh, we have six weeks left. We are Oof. definitely getting down towards the end of this book. In my uh, trade paperback edition, it's 130 pages. So this would be like one night territory if we were not locked into a two chapters a week. Um, <laughs> next week, we have upcoming chapter 38, Practice, and chapter 39, Flight from the White Tower. So whatever hey, is happening- spoilers, man. It's got to happen quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. It's it's always funny to me when a spoiler happens in a chapter two because you're like, clearly it doesn't matter. But also, like, I don't want to know that's about to happen. Like, there is a crazy example of that in the last book of this series. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm just checking it out. Uh, yeah, that that gives us uh, it's it's kind of an average week. It's it's like 28 in my edition or so. So we are closing in on that last hundred pages. So um, we are grateful for all of you. I have already reignited my use of the socials, as I promised last week, and I will continue to do so uh, this week. I'm going to share uh, Tyler uh, did something really cool for his self for his birthday uh and so we will uh share some kind of cool off-topic things on our instagram this week uh to check that out and uh we hope you join us there and you join us in our future recordings as we continue through the glass column
So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.